Welcome back to What Happens Next, the podcast that examines some of the biggest challenges facing our world and asks the experts, what will happen if we don't change? And what can we do to create a better future? I'm Dr. Susan Carlin. Keep listening to find out what happens next. You know, in we've seen it almost what you would call a tsunami of obesity um, in the last 30 years. The community society at large hasn't quite kept up with where the science is. It's absolutely one of the most legitimate uh, forms of discrimination. And I think we haven't explored the changes we, we can make to our environment to help facilitate better weight control. Despite the miracle diets on Instagram and the weight loss clickbait we see all over the internet these days, Anyone who's ever tried to lose even a bit of weight can agree that it's hard, really, really hard. And the way we've been taught to think about it isn't helping. You can swear by an easy calorie in, calorie out formula all day long, but for some people, that doesn't seem to make a difference at all. And even the way we talk about bodies and fat is fraught. As new evidence emerges, we seem to be expecting the impossible of our own bodies and others. What does science really have to say about weight loss? Should we change how we think about and therefore talk about diet, exercise and wellness? Welcome to part one of our look into weight loss on what happens next. So it's it's hard to lose weight and it's really hard to keep it off. Professor Michael Cowley is head of Monash University's Department of Physiology and was the founding director of the Monash Obesity and Diabetes Institute. The clinical data suggests only about 20% of people who lose weight can keep it off, but we know that most people can lose weight, or at least a little bit, early, but very few keep it off. One in five keep it off. And when you say one in five can keep it off, what time frame do we consider keeping it off to mean? Yeah, that's about five years out. Right. And so one would assume that at 10 years out, even less than that proportion will be weight reduced. And what happens to the other 80%? They lose weight and then they gain it back? Yeah, let's regain it. And it, it happens over varying time courses. One of the most damaging conditions we see is people who repeatedly lose weight and regain it and lose weight and regain it. And there's good suggestions that when you do that, your body changes fundamentally and becomes much more energy efficient. And so you require less food intake to keep yourself weight stable, which means that to keep weight off, you have to food restrict yourself even more. And so, that, for example, the patient, people who participate in those TV shows where you lose weight, at the end of that process, some of them have had dramatic changes in, in their the way their body handles energy. And so they are predisposed to weight regain. But if you've done it three or four times, then the, condition, the, the predisposition becomes worse and worse. It's like the body fights back. Exactly. And is determined to bring you back to the weight that you were. Absolutely. And, and we see it both with weight gain and weight loss. So the body fights to not gain weight because the brain helps us balance our body weight, re- restricting how much we gain. And the flip side's true too. When people decrease their food intake, they don't lose as much weight as those calories would suggest because mm. the body becomes more energy efficient. And so the brain fights against changes in our body weight. So it's like every person has something of a set point. Yeah, we, we call it a set point, but I think we can put too much emphasis in that set point because it's not really hard encoded. It's a response to our environment. And some people call it a settling point because with a given level of other activities in your life, that set point will set you 
will, will fall at different places. So you, you might have a set point with a certain level of activity, but if you double your activity, then that settling point will be at a lower weight. It's just that we live in a world where we don't need to do very much. And for many people, exercise requires not just a conscious effort, but an expenditure of money because mm. the, the built environment we live in makes those things more challenging than they were in our evolutionary history. Michelle Bridges is Australia's most influential personal trainer. You probably know her from the hit reality television show, The Biggest Loser. She's also the author of 17 best-selling books on fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I wanted to ask her, what are the contributing factors that make it difficult for her clients to keep weight off? It turns out there are many. You know, a lot of people will say that keeping it off is harder than the initial getting it off in the first place. I mean, I've heard that many, many times and uh, and witnessed it with many of the people that I've worked with as well. It is a very complex can of worms when you start looking at it because, you know, not only do we have to consider our DNA, our gene pool, uh, where we come from, our culture, uh, our genetics, our our gender, our age, our hormones, um, whether or not we're taking medications, um, our, our past traumas. Like I know it sounds like a lot, but these are the complexities that kind of weave their way into often why people struggle to keep their weight off. I've had many instances where people say, well, something happened, I had a death in the family or I've just got stress or I've lost my job or I've had an injury Um, and these are the reasons as to why they feel that, you know, the weight's come back on again. You have been in this industry for a long time and you must have seen some changes in the way society thinks about weight loss. What have you seen in the way society has evolved or devolved? in its approach to weight loss? Well, when people ask me about this conversation and and I kind of have to consider how long this conversation has been going for, one story that sticks in my mind is when I renovated a house many years ago, uh, I was pulling up the floorboards and underneath I found all these newspapers from the 1940s and 1950s and on those newspapers were commercials for cigarettes and all sorts of things and diet pills. And I thought, okay, this is a conversation that's been going on well before I arrived uh, in this world and, and many probably many years before even that then. What's the best way to reduce? Eat plenty or starve yourself? Starve yourself? I confess I'm a waistline watcher from way back. Well, that's enough for today. Lose excess weight naturally and fast. So it's it's something that has been in our society or in our culture for a long time. I definitely think, you know, in we've seen a, almost what you would call a tsunami of obesity um, in the last 30 years, which has been amplified by our environment and the way in which we have food that's very high in calories and very low in nutrition that's available for us at any point during the day and and that was something that was certainly not available in the 40s and 50s or even potentially in the 60s that much um so there's definitely been an amplification of the problem or the issue or however you want to put it and certainly of the conversation that comes along with it as well it's not a coincidence that before covid came along the the epidemic or the even pandemic, actually, if you look at it, was obesity. 
Dr. Ahmed Ali is a general surgeon and specialist upper gastrointestinal surgeon. He's the head of upper GI surgery at the Austin Hospital here in Melbourne and has performed thousands of weight loss surgeries. He also happens to be my brother-in-law. Obesity in the West has become the single uh, most prevalent reversible cause of premature death. It's overtaken smoking. In Australia, the incidence of overweight and obesity is now approaching 70%. Obesity itself is 30% of our adult population. Our children are sitting at around 26% overweight and obese and increasing alarmingly. And this trend is continuing. And not only that, the most rapid increase is actually at the very heaviest end, at the morbid obesity end. And there's no sign of it slowing down. It's a disaster. It already you know, even just from an economic perspective, we're talking about billions of dollars every year. The direct cost of obesity uh, in Australia is billions of dollars every year. Mm. And yet we continue to uh, fluff around the edges and not not think about this seriously. So, um, yeah, 20 years from now, there'll just be more of it, more burden on the health uh, dollar, more burden on our health resources. Um, this is a subject that's been talked about a long, for a long time, but there's been very little inroads in terms of actual practical strategy. There is still this attitude that if you are overweight, fat, whatever word you want to use, that it's a moral failing. Yeah, unfortunately, that's right. I think, you know, like in many areas, uh, the community, society at large hasn't quite kept up with where the science is. And particularly in this area, because it's so ingrained in us, isn't it, that we we make assumptions about people that are suffering with their weight. You know, we talk about people that are suffering obesity or, or overweight and immediately there are certain assumptions that con- are conjured up in our mind, you know, that they lack discipline, for example, or that they can't apply themselves. If only they just ate less or if they exercised more. As if it was their choice to be large. You know, that's sort of what underpins it, I guess, is this idea that, well, it's just a matter of self-discipline. Um, and if you really wanted to, you could just apply yourself and, and, and you'd lose weight. And yet every observation we make shows that that just simply isn't true. So you're right, weight is stigmatised. We do tend to make assumptions about people that are, are suffering uh, overweight or obesity. It's absolutely one of the most legitimate uh, forms of discrimination. Dr. Hilary Offman is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst and lecturer at the University of Toronto. She often writes about fat phobia and the role shame plays when it comes to being overweight. It's seen as a choice. Hmm. You know, people can't change the colour of their skin, um, but they can change their size. Hmm. And so there's this sense that if you're fat, it's because you're lazy and you're unmotivated and you're non-compliant with your doctor's advice, and that you choose to be fat, and that you don't care. You don't care about yourself. You don't care about your loved ones. You don't care about the rest of society. Uh, and of course, that is an assumption uh, that comes from a belief that you know individuals are always responsible for their own outcomes. Um, the term that I've heard applied to that is a neoliberal healthism. Hmm, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that the society is very invested in people believing how one is, and in this case, fat, is 
uh, up to the individual to determine. And that means that if they're fat, it's their fault because they could choose not to be fat. But what that does is it takes society uh, off having any responsibility for it. Uh, things like poverty and education and lack of privilege uh, and knowledge and, and genetics, um, all of those things are diminished uh, such that the blame becomes that of the individual. Um, and I think that perpetuates uh, all the other things that go along with being fat that nobody really wants to own. I mean, in our Instagram world, people... Uh, want to look how they want people to see them, not necessarily how they are. Um, and so we see all these instances of photoshopping that is absolutely absurd. Uh, nobody wants to be real because there's something wrong uh, somehow with having vulnerabilities in general, especially ones that people can see. Um, and I think, you know, from a societal point of view, there's a lot invested in a, a multi-billion dollar industry that people pay for to be thinner, you know, to buy the Peloton, you know, not go for a walk, to buy the fancy makeup, to get the plastic surgery, the fancy cars, whatever it is. Um, there is a lot of reason why uh, in a capitalist society, people don't want to give it up. Because there's a lot of money to be made uh, at people's uh, lack of confidence and belief that they're not good enough. Uh, so those are a couple of reasons. And I think part, there's also the issue of there's just a lack of knowledge. Here's Dr. Michael Cowley again. I think we have, a, humans have a capacity to single out people that are different on a variety of levels, and I think it's, you know, it's probably an evolutionary basis of tribalism there from the beginning. Um, I think there remains an underlying virtuosity in lean athleticism, and I think there's probably, again, good evolutionary basis for that, and we idolise the Spartans for their their vigour and uh, leanness. And I think from that flows the capacity to stigmatise people who don't hold up such lofty physical ideals. What do you think the average Australian misunderstands about obesity? I think it, there's a fundamental misconception that it's just about willpower mm. and there's a fundamental misconception that obesity is caused by sloth and gluttony. Yep. And those are both, all three are untrue. So if it's not just about willpower, how does science explain the link between weight and genetics? Here's Ahmed Ali again. There has been a real change in the way the scientific community has understood weight loss in the last couple of decades, particularly the link between weight and genetics. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Susan, that's right. I think particularly the last uh, 10 years or so, there's been a lot of research in this area and it was really stimulated by observations, you know, nearly 30, even 40 years ago of uh, identical twins. Now, identical twin studies where the twins are actually raised in separate households for whatever reason. They've been separated at birth and they're raised at se uh, in separate households. And, and these twins have actually contributed a lot to medical science. They've been studied in many ways. But one of the observations that was made was that within very close parameters, you know, within a couple of kilograms 
the identical twins tended to have identical weight, regardless of the family, social circumstances, etc., that they were raised in. And that's, if you like, was initial evidence to say, nah, maybe there's a genetic component to weight here that we're we're not paying attention to. Everyone understands weight um, is related to what you eat and how you eat and you know what energy you burn up, so what exercise you do. And yet here were some observations that were saying, well, maybe it's not quite that simple. And I think that's what the science of the last 10 years has, has demonstrated. There have really been extensive studies into why is it particularly that people that have excess weight, that suffer with excess weight, why is it they find it so hard to lose that weight and to keep it off? So far, we've heard that only one in five people who try to lose weight are successful at keeping it off and that weight loss may simply be out of our control and come down to our genetics or our environment. Which makes me wonder, is there any hope at all if we want to keep it off? Here's Dr Michael Cowley again. I imagine for people listening to this, the 80% who lose weight and put put it back on, this would actually be quite a demoralising conversation because they would think, so what, it's it's hopeless, I will never be able to keep the weight off that I, that I want to lose? Yeah, I, I would hate to give that impression. Um, any weight loss is beneficial for your health um, but and, and it's possible to lose weight. It just It is harder than people think. Uh, and there's lots of approaches that work to help people lose weight from diet plans to formulised meals to surgery and, and drugs where I work, um, all those things can help. Um, and I think we haven't explored the changes we, we can make to our environment to help facilitate better weight control. But obviously, if, if you need to drive everywhere, then your chance to incorporate daily activities that'll help you control weight is lower. And so there's lots of changes we can make um, and those will help that 80%. Is that people who have engaged only in their own diet and exercise program or does that include things like bariatric surgery, medication? I guess I'm wondering, are some things more effective than others? So the, the one in five that I'm referring to are people who make lifestyle changes. So that's changes in diet and changes in the way they engage with their environment, activity really. Um, the rest isn't included in that analysis. And that, that data comes from something called the Long-Term Weight Control Registry run by a, an academic called Rena Wing in the US. And she tracks people who, who successfully lose weight and keep it off for a long time. Uh, and there are particular characteristics that are associated with long-term weight loss and long-term weight maintenance um, that you know we can explore if you want to. But uh, I would love to explore. What are they? Uh, so, if it was any any other condition, you'd probably call it obsessive compulsive behaviour. They oh. they they have quite detailed plans for their days. Apparently, like detailed meal plans and very bland meal plans. Mm. And I guess the rationale there is, if it's lettuce for lunch and lettuce for dinner and lunch again tomorrow, you're not going to say, "Oh, ripper! I love lettuce. I'll have some more." You you have no incentive to eat more because it's a novelty and we, we know humans love novelty. Mm. You'll always eat more at the buffet than you will if you just make one plate. Uh, so the, the, the detailed meal planning, boring meals, calorie controlled meals uh, and very high levels of activity because as they've lost weight, their bodies become more energy efficient and so to replace that lost involuntary effect, they have to voluntarily exercise more. Mm. And so it's an hour or more of aerobic exercise a day for most of those people. Right. So not only is it incredibly disciplined, 
But the mentality of someone who does that is quite specific. Most people couldn't be happy to live for the rest of their lives on very regimented, bland food. Absolutely. I agree, yeah. And so that's why it's better to educate the population about not getting to that to be overweight and obese rather than trying to help them lose weight. Is that a is that a something of a losing battle though? Like you said, if it's epigenetics, if it's it's if it's the environment that we're in, will just switch on the genes for some people and make it harder for that person to resist the high calorie environment they're in, as opposed to someone else. How much can education protect that person? It's the best we've got, I guess. Um, it clearly some people don't become overweight now. Thirty or forty percent don't, mm. um, but it's much harder to roll roll things backwards and the argument public health people use is about putting an animal at the bottom of the cliff and trying to throw yeah. people back up it and I mean obviously that's not a solution to anything so we we need to intervene to help people understand good choices we need to intervene to help people interact with their environment in a more healthy manner to help them not become overweight because it's very hard to unroll that once it happens and the body makes changes that are apparently irreversible that's quite terrifying, I have to say, as I'm sitting here. It is. And the the other, I guess, disturbing part of it is it becomes harder as we get older. So as we age after 30 or 35, we start to lose muscle mass and we replace that with fat. And, and muscle burns much more energy at rest than fat does. And so for every year after 35 or so, you need to either be more active or eat less mm. to stay weight stable. Now, you can counteract that by a training regime that helps you build muscle so to maintain that muscle mass. And that's really healthy because it exercises terrific for you anyway. And those kind of training regimes that maintain muscle mass also maintain bone strength. So that's really good as well. But we, we're not paying much attention to this yet. And I think this is the, the next horizon of, of healthy aging. And it, we have to intervene not at 65 when people are getting aged, but at 35 when they can make changes that will set them up for a better aging. It seems like losing weight is harder than we think, particularly because of the high chance we'll put it back on. However, it is possible. When you join us on our next episode, I'll seek the best advice from our experts on some of the ways weight loss can be achieved. We'll also continue our discussion on the way we talk about weight. Thank you to our guests today, Dr. Michael Cowley, Dr. Ahmed Ali, Dr. Hilary Offman and Michelle Bridges. Visit our show notes to learn more about their work. Thank you also to the Monash University Performing Arts Centre's David Lee Sound Gallery, where a portion of this season was recorded. If you're enjoying What Happens Next, don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share the show with your friends. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.